this, uh, this afternoon is the other perspective from the prophets that we get, and that is that the prophets of the Old Testament prophesy the abrogation, the cessation, the ceasing, the stopping of ancient Israel's Sabbaths, plural, new moons and festivals. So on the one hand, I tried to show from Jeremiah 31, 33 implicitly and then explicitly from Isaiah 56, 1 through 8. On the one hand, when you go to Israel's, Christ's writing prophets in the Old Testament, um, when they're speaking about the future, there's the, there's the presence of some sort of Sabbath in their, in their language. On the other hand, when you read our Lord's prophets, writing prophets of the Hebrew Old Testament, there's another strand of prophetic teaching, and it has to be with prophetic abrogation and cessation. Okay. The ceasing, the stopping of certain activities. You have the perpetual perpetuity of some sort of Sabbath, and you, yet you have the cessation of ancient Israel's Sabbaths. So I tried to show you this morning that the Old Testament clearly uh, prophesies the perpetuity of some form of Sabbath, and now we got to deal with the fact that the Old Testament as clearly prophesies the abrogation and cessation of ancient Israel's Sabbaths. I told you in the first hour, I chose my words correctly, correctly, carefully, and hopefully correct, correctly as well. That's not good. In the, I don't know. Ancient Israel had Sabbaths, instituted, plural. Ancient Israel had feasts. Ancient Israel had a unique calendar, religious calendar, that did not predate it, but came with it as a covenant nation with God. There are not Sabbaths, new moons, and festivals prior to what we, prior to what we call the Mosaic Covenant. Those things came with it, had a temporary function, typological function, shadowy function, fulfilled their purpose, and have been abrogated by fulfillment, and therefore uh, ought not to be uh, ought not to be practiced. Now we have this prophetic abrogation and cessation of ancient Israel's Sabbaths and other things. In several texts, you can turn there if you want, or you can just listen. This is Hosea chapter 2, verse 11. It says this, I will also cause all her mirth to cease, her feast days, her new moons, her Sabbaths, all her appointed feasts. That's just a really small part of Hosea 2.11. Hosea 2.11. Hosea's prophecy, if we read a larger chunk of it, we would see that he's dealing with the days of the inaugurated new covenant. He's dealing with, technical terms, the interadvental period of time. He's speaking about the days in which we now live, just like Isaiah was. He's, uh, this phrase, in that day, 
verses 16, 18, and 21 of Hosea chapter 2. We're not going to go read it, but there's a phrase there. It's somewhat typical for the minor and, and major prophets, at least the prophets. In that day, quite often is actually a technical phrase that refers to the days of the interadvental period, okay? Uh, this phrase in that day is used prophetically of our own days. In Isaiah 2, 20 through 22, we read this. Uh, it mentions the Lord's servant, this obscure servant of the Lord as a type of Christ. Here's Isaiah 2, 2 20 through 22. Then it will come about in that day, there's that phrase, that I will summon my servant, now this is odd, Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah, and I will clothe him with your tunic and tie your sash securely about him. I will entrust him with your authority, and he will become a father to the inhabitants of Jerusalem, to the house of Judah. Then I will set the key of the house of David on his shoulder. When he opens, no one will shut. When he shuts, no one will open. Now, there's a very obscure Isianic prophecy using the phrase in that day, which is used in Hosea chapter 2 as well. And I'm saying what Isaiah is ultimately talking about is actually our Lord. This is a weird prophetic little oracle found here in Isaiah 2, 20 through 22. But listen to these more familiar words. And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, These things says he who is holy, he who is true, he who has the key of David, he who opens and no one shuts and shuts and no one opens. If you have a red letter edition, those words are red, right? They're about Christ, and they are echoing Isaiah 2, this odd figure, this servant, Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah, is somehow a type of him who was to come, our Lord Jesus. But my point is, it uses the same phrase, and I'm saying, in that day, sometimes is a technical phrase that refers to our days. I think Isaiah is clear. I think the Hosea text is as well. Hosea, in many places in the New Testament, several places in the New Testament, is referenced as being prophetic of the days in which we live. For instance, uh, Paul references Hosea 1.10 and Hosea 2.23 in Romans 9.25, applying them to first century Christians. As he says also in Hosea, I will call them my people who were not my people and her beloved who are not beloved. So there is a text from Isaiah where Paul goes back there and says, hey, that which Hosea was talking about, not Isaiah, but Hosea, that which Hosea was talking about finds its fulfillment in the Jew Gentile, Jew -Gentile church. This exercise is all for the purpose of showing you that when we see in that day in Hosea, it's the days that we live in. And elsewhere in that day speaks of the days in which we live. Isaiah 2 is one of them. First Peter, or Peter references Hosea 1, 9 and 10 and 2, 23, just like Paul and applies them to first century Christians who once were not a people and are now the people of God who had not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. So Hosea is clearly speaking of the days of the inaugurated new covenant era 
And according to the New Testament usage of Hosea elsewhere, he is speaking of the time in redemptive history, Hosea is, when God will bring Gentiles into religious relationship with himself and Jews, which much of the New Testament deals with that very issue. So my first observation was Hosea is talking about our days. Second, Hosea 2.11 clearly prophesies the abrogation of Old Covenant Israel's Sabbaths along with all her appointed feasts. Interesting language. Hosea uses a triad of terms here, feast, feast days, new moons, Sabbaths. Now, if you are an avid reader of the Old Testament, you're going, hey, wait, wait a minute, I, I've seen that triad before. Hosea doesn't invent the triad. A triad is three terms conceptually together. Hosea borrowed it. It's used in many places in the Old Testament. If you want to know, 1 Chronicles 23, 31, 2 Chronicles 2, 4, 2 Chronicles 31, 3, Nehemiah 10, 33, and Isaiah 1, 13, and 14 all use that three-term triad. Well, that's kind of redundant. A triad is a three-termed thing. So he's not inventing this triad. He's picking it up and utilizing it in a certain prophetic context, a context where he's talking about the inter-advental days of the Messiah or servant of the Lord. So he's speaking of the abrogation of old covenant ceremonies, we might say. That's what he's talking about. When the old covenant goes, Israel's feast days, new moon, Sabbaths, and all her appointed feasts go with it. If you're not convinced, read the book of Hebrews, okay? It's one of the issues that was dealt with there. The third observation on the Hosea text is the New Testament confirms this understanding of Hosea 2.11. It uses this very triad of terms in Colossians 2.16. Remember, this morning I mentioned this text. So let no one judge you in food or in drink or regarding a festival or a new moon or Sabbath. Ever heard that before? Yes. Many, many years ago, early 1990s, I was preaching through the book of Colossians, and I came up to Colossians 2.16, and I think it was an Anglican commentator that said, this triad of terms is found uh, in several places in the Old Testament. I'm going, what? It was the first time that ever dawned on me, and I thought, oh, I wonder if it's a technical triad. Uh, these are technical terms that have technical meaning, old covenant, temporary, shadowy things. Is that what Paul's referring to there? And I think that's exactly what Paul is referring to there in Colossians chapter 2. Not that there's no sacred food under the new covenant. By the way, is there sacred food and sacred drink under the new covenant? Yes, there is. The bread and, the, and that which fills the cup, right? The wine. Sacred food. So it can't be, uh, let no one judge you in food or in drink in an absolute manner. Like if you were in the pattern of, of being a, a member of the church in good standing and you were refusing to take the Lord's Supper, I would come and, and judge you on that. I'd say, my judgment on this is, that's not good. Why are you f withholding yourself from a, the means of grace? 
They're sacred food under the new covenant. They're sacred drink under the new covenant. And God has instituted it as a means of grace. And you are robbing yourself of that. So it can't be absolute. But when you understand the terms together and you're going, oh, what Paul's dealing with in Colossians 2 is some form of Judaizing. People saying, yeah, you need Jesus, but also the stuff from the old covenant as well. And they're imposing not, uh, on, on both Jews and Greeks this side of the incarnation, sufferings, and glory of our Lord. They're acting as if no redemptive historical shift has taken place in light of what Christ did. And Paul's saying, don't know. They can't do that. We're not doing that. We're not going that way. That's what he rebuked Peter for, Galatians chapter 1. That's what he deals with in the book of Romans. He deals with it in the book of Galatians. He deals with it in the book of Ephesians. He deals with it with the book of, in the book of Colossians. And he deals with it in the book of Hebrews. We're not going backwards. But neither are we going to sever ourselves from everything that precedes us. That which precedes us prepares the way for us in types and shadows and, and, uh, and things of that nature. So I think that's how you have to understand uh, Colossians 3.16. It uses, it's clear New Testament language that sees Hosea's prophecy as fulfilled. Because Hosea was prophesying of the era in which we now live and Paul lived. And Hosea used the terms, Paul picks up the exact terms in a context foreseen by Hosea. Not experienced by Hosea, but foreseen by Hosea. By the way, remember that statement by our Lord during his earthly ministry? Many kings and prophets desire to see the things that you see, but they, you know, they didn't. They, they weren't able to see him. They, they, they were wanting to see the incarnate Son of God on the earth. Paul uses, by the way, the plural for Sabbath in Colossians 2.16, Sabbaths. The Old Covenant had both weekly and non-weekly Sabbaths. Um, I think Paul had Hosea's prophecy in mind when he wrote that. I'm not the only one. The New Testament announces the abrogation of the Old Covenant and by inference, all of its temporary institutions, Sabbaths, new, uh, festival, feast, new moons, and Sabbaths. In many places, the New Testament says the Old Covenant is abrogated by virtue of being fulfilled or it served its purposes. Bunch of texts, especially Hebrews 8, 9, and 10. The Old Covenant has been abrogated. The Old Covenant ceremonies fulfilled their purposes. They have been abrogated as well. So when the Old Covenant goes, the triad of Colossians 2.16 goes as well. In other words, we could put it this way, the Sabbath given to the people of Israel under the Mosaic Covenant with all the characteristics uh, that God desired for it has been abolished. Um, John Owen says this, to say that the Sabbath as given unto the Jews is not abolished is to introduce the whole system of Mosaical ordinances which stand on the same bottom with it. Festivals, new moons, and Sabbaths they all go together. So he says, look, if you want to uh, say that the Jewish Sabbath as given to the ancient people of God abides to this day, you got to do the whole thing. 
You can't pick and choose. It was given as as a unit. And I think in that sense, uh, he, he, he's right. I, I'm not going to say I disagree with John Owen, although I do. But I, I, I think John Owen's right there. The Old Testament prophesies a Sabbath for the inaugurated uh, New Covenant era, while at the same time announcing the end of Old Covenant Sabbaths. According to the Old Testament, then, when the sa- Old Sabbath, go- when the Old Sabbaths go, a Sabbath yet abides. That's why I tried to prove to you today. On the one hand, the prophets say the abrogation and cessation of ancient Israel's Sabbaths, new moons, and festivals. On the other hand, the prophets also say, but there's still a thing that we're going to use the word Sabbath to describe in the future during the interadvental days days of the inaugurated new covenant. Thus, a, a new Sabbath must be instituted. There must be something new about this Sabbath that Isaiah foretells. It has new aspects to it. It has a, a different character, a new new redemptive historical roots or something like that. We're not exactly told. We, we have to await the language of fulfillment, the language that the New Testament ends up using, to give us exactly what it's spelled out to be or even what it's supposed to be called the Lord's Day. We're given a title for it. Um, and theologically, I have no problem calling it the Christian Sabbath because it is a daily or excuse me, a weekly rest from normal labors for the purpose of feasting on God. But it's not the seventh day, it's the first day, so it's uniquely related to Christ, so it's Christian. I have no problem with that. I think most of the time I call Sunday the Lord's Day, though. We can't. It's a sin to call it Sunday, right? Because that came from Roman pagan astrology or something like that and you know that everything that comes from a from a rotten beginning uh, is a is a sin to engage with it like like a child conceived out of wedlock rotten beginning therefore we should have nothing to say it's a fallacy right it's like we're not going there we you call it sunday i i like to call it the lord's day I don't know what we'll call it in glory. A relic of the past. Because we won't have weekly rest. We'll just have rest. So here's a conclusion. Uh, By the way, there are two other passages in the New Testament. Romans 14, often used when people push back on what I've been saying, and Galatians 4. I'm not going to go to those texts. You can go read them, but if you read them with the right filters, you're going, whatever they're talking about, I know what it can't be talking about. Can't undo all this other stuff. Has to be indifferent stuff. Romans 14, it's got to be, it has to do with something connected to fasting and religious, cultural, important days for people. It can't be dealing with a weekly Sabbath principle. Uh, same thing, or a similar thing happens in Galatians 4 as happens in Colossians. The context is pushing back against these Judaizers. So here's my conclusion. The prophets assume the Sabbath of the Mosaic Covenant in their writings. With reference to the future, they predict the abolition of Israel's feast days, new moons, and Sabbaths under the inaugurated new covenant. They also hold out the prospect of a Sabbath in the Messianic era. 
though they realize, uh, though they utilize old covenant forms of worship to depict the worship of the new covenant people of God in the future, just what these forms look like awaits further revelation in the motif of fulfillment, which we have in the New Testament. Aren't you glad I read that entire paragraph there? So all I've been saying today is something's gone, but there's still this thing. And what this thing looks like, it's going to take more revelation. This thing called the Sabbath that people are supposed to be delighting in, call the Sabbath a delight, Isaiah 50. Is that Isaiah 58? I think it is. 59, 58. Yeah, that's Isaiah 58. Call the Sabbath a delight. And if you really tease that out in this, in its own context, it's, it's not just something for them at that time, way back in ancient history, but it's a prophetic kind of intonation that's going on there as well. Matter of fact, there's a book on the book table called, Call the Sabbath a Delight. And if you're going, well, why should we do that? It's the old, it's old. Read the book. It's very helpful. One of the best written, written books by Walter J. Chantry, who as of last Friday is absent from the body and present with the Lord. He, uh, Pastor Chantry passed away. I forgot to mention that and pray. But in that book and in other books that I put on the back table, you all, they all wrestle with the Isaiah, Isaiah passages. And they're all saying, okay, it's one thing for Isaiah to be ministering to his own generation, which he did, but it's another thing Isaiah recognized and the other prophets recognized. They weren't serving just their own generation, but us on whom the ends of the ages have come, like Paul says to the Corinthians. They were speaking about the future, and when they speak about the future, they use the language of the past to talk about the future. There's this, you know, the Sabbath, the altar, the new, the Sabbath, the altar, the sacrifices, and the priests, and the temple, and the house of prayer language. Remember all that in Isaiah 56? Those are speaking prophetically of our church in one sense, and all true churches uh, throughout the interadvental period. And you see the big the big interpretive key here is Jesus. And here, here's the reality we got to deal with. Jesus interpreted himself in light of what the Old Testament's divine intention was. He believed he was the fulfillment of, 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 of all, all that which the Old Testament said would take place when the servant of the Lord came. The apostles interpreted the Old Testament, just like Jesus did. And both our Lord, my house shall be a house of prayer, and the apostles, the church, which is the household of God. Both our Lord and the apostles use Isianic language to basically say what Isaiah was predicting is now here. And the big, big issue for us is, okay, you know, I see, I saw, I saw the arguments, you know, they're creation based. The words of Jesus ring in my ear. We're going to look at the passage in at least Mark 2 next week. The Sabbath was made for man, 
and not man for the Sabbath. I hear that. I see the unique institution of some sort of covenantally conditioned Sabbath and Sabbaths and feasts and new moons, a whole religious calendar with ancient Israel. I get it. It had a historical beginning. It had a historical end at the cross and resurrection of Christ. I also see this creation principle of labor and marriage, and I assume Sabbath is transcending that covenant and coming all the way into this covenantal era in which we live in. So our the, our big question is, is, what should our Christian Sabbath look like? Well, I know one thing for very certain. It should be a Christian one on the first day of the week, not the seventh day. Then your, your next question should be, yeah, but what? It should never be, you should never ask this question about the Lord's Day. What does God forbid, forbid me to do? What's a no-no? You should ask the other question. What do I get to do? That's a lot better. Because on the other one, you're going to say, was it a sin to mow the lawn? You really want to call your pastor and say, Pastor, is it a sin to mow my lawn? Well, on the, in the big scheme of things, no, it's not a sin to mow your lawn. And I guess I can paint a scenario where I could have justified at some point in my life if certain circumstances came in, I would have mowed my lawn on, on a Sunday. I've never have since I've become a Christian. I suppose, you know, the, asking all those questions just gets down into petty stuff. We'll see our Lord gives us three principles that are very clear. Piety, works of piety, works of mercy, works of necessity. And we'll analyze those and define them and see how, uh, wrestle with how best to uh, supply those, uh, fulfill those principles. Well, that is it. The plane has landed. I will pray. We thank you, Lord, for your word. Sometimes hard, very hard. These are hard issues, difficult to work through. But I pray that you would bless where uh, I've accurately reflected your word. We love you. We love your word. We want to do what it says. We want to understand its holistic teaching. We don't just want to pick our favorite parts out here and there. We got to deal with, um, we got to deal with all of it. And, and please help me to be a better preacher and teacher on this subject and help us all to be more grateful, more thankful. Thank you that we don't live in the, in the era of the shadows. We live in the era of, of the reality, of the fulfillment in Christ and the church. Uh, Israel was just a, a, a means that you used, ancient Israel was a means that you used for a time to point to the, the great servant of God, way greater than ancient Israel, and all of its prophets put together, um, Jesus of Nazareth and his kingdom. And we pray that you'd bless now as we uh, remember him, we ask for grace as we partake together in Jesus' name. Amen.